It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Social media has been dominated by the serious stories of immigration atrocities and less serious stories about jackets and restaurants. We cover the news in a lightning round and talk with Tiffany Bond about her independent run for Congress in Maine. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. another episode of Pantsuit Politics, everyone. We are so excited to be here again with you this week. And we also wanted to take a moment to say our two primary forms of communication we spend the most time on are Instagram at Pantsuit Politics and our email list, where we send an email every Friday with the articles, books, podcasts we're listening to, and additional listener feedback. So if you want a little bit more from Pantsuit Politics, go to PantsuitPoliticsShow.com and sign up for our email. If you spent any time on social media this weekend... It probably gave you a headache like it did me. And we have recognized before that we have to talk about what people are talking about before they will listen to the things they're not talking about. So (laughs) here we go in our lightning round format. Dylan, please put six minutes on the clock for the following three stories. The jacket, the photograph, and the dinner. Sarah, do you have anything to say about Melania's 
I really don't care to you jacket that she wore to the southern border of the United States. I really appreciate the First Lady making a visit to immigrant children and bringing attention to that issue. I usually find Melania's choices of fashion deliberate and sending a message. I do not usually find them to be in on message with the administration. So I think her choice of that jacket, um, especially considering that she is an immigrant herself, that she is a mother, and that she issued an independent statement on the separation of families, to be her I don't care about immigrants statement as it was interpreted. Um, I don't know. I'm not inside Melania's mind, but I would prefer to focus on the fact that I do appreciate her visit to those children. I agree that I appreciate her visit. I thought the jacket was in very poor taste. I also thought it was confusing because isn't it hot in Texas right now? The whole thing. Well, she just wore it on the plane. She didn't wear it in Texas. She wore it on the plane. And then when she got there, it was not on. At least that was my reading of it. I also would like Robin Given of the Washington Post to get back from vacation and tell us all what to think about this. I would prefer to be done talking about the jacket. So let's (laughs) move on. The photograph that has become an iconic image already of a young girl crying at the border that later some reporting came out that she had actually not been separated from her mother, which the White House has used as a talking point about fake news. Sarah, your thoughts? I don't want to go first. Okay. <laughs> I don't always want to go first on the lightning round. So Here's what I'll say then. Okay. I think that if you read the backstory on this child and one had no further questions, then we're operating from different places. Because the backstory came from her father, who was not on board with her mother bringing her to the United States. So if you took that without any further questions, you and I are operating from a different set of life experiences. I also think if you read that entire backstory and were someone like the White House press secretary who tweeted about this and you felt totally vindicated, we're also operating from different life experiences. I think that image is a powerful one. I think the fact that it was not used as judiciously as possible is really unfortunate. I also don't think that that negates anything that's going on, nor is it even on the top 100 list of important things about what's happening at the border. I agree. I would also like to use my agreement, particularly with your statement about the White House press secretary looking to be vindicated to lead into the next subject, because I don't have a lot to add about the misuse of the photo, which was the dinner. I think that the White House press secretary, by any report, had a tough week. Uh, Didn't want to report on the family, didn't want to answer questions about the separation of families, that the reporting was that's why the Homeland um, Security Secretary came and answered questions. And then they just didn't have any White House briefings for a couple days. And in my pop psychology moment, I think that um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was looking to um, feel a little righteous. And no matter how I feel about the restaurant, the restaurant tour asking her to leave, which personally, I felt like whether I agreed with or not with her, her decision, I felt like she handled it very respectfully, pulled them aside, didn't make a scene, paid for their food, um, didn't post about social media on it, although her, her staff did. I found that Sarah Huckabee's Sanders posting about it, not an appropriate response to use her bully pulpit for, and especially considering the history of what that would do to a business or to a person. I'm sure this woman has already gotten death threats. I think that if Sarah Huckabee Sanders was looking to take the high road, she wouldn't have said anything at all. I would like for anyone to just stop and be an adult 
in mm. these situations. We all had opportunities to allow this to be what it was, which was one business owner's decision. Is it a decision that I would replicate? It's not. And I'm happy to talk about that if you'd like. But it's one decision, one moment. No one was harmed. No one was injured. It did not have to become a national lightning rod. And the administration, beyond Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Mm -hmm. chose to make it so. The president tweeted about this restaurant this morning in the most juvenile terms possible. And then all of us just keep piling on and piling on. We all have a decision to make to stop it at some point. And I just want to make that decision. I want someone to be the adult who says, enough of that. Let's move on. Well, I think this is actually an excellent transition to that exact topic, which I would like to talk about in more in depth. One of my favorite writers on the internet, Anne Helen Peterson, did a really in-depth piece on ranchers. And she was talking about how hard it was to have worked on this piece and um, to put it out and to watch the way in which really well-written, really well-researched articles just fall flat right now because they don't, they're not about Donald Trump or his administration. And she says, that's the thing about an administration like this one. Its effectiveness stems at least in part through its ability to prevent any other narrative from taking root. To be clear, I'm not saying that we're wrong to focus attention on this issue. Rather, I'm anxious and disheartened by the existence of the issue in the first place and its capacity exercised at so many other points in the administration to reduce us to one thing, one fight. There are so many stories to tell, so many ideas worth exploring. But for the time being, we remain focused on the ones this administration forces upon us. And her title of this email was basically Trump obliterates culture, like he just sucks up all the oxygen in the room. And I was thinking a lot about that. I was thinking about another article I recently read about Obama and how he is completely absent on purpose and how he is refusing to be drug into the political fights of the Trump administration and and as such is being perceived as very absent. And I was also thinking (laughs) a lot of articles combined. And there was a really great piece that I sent to Beth immediately in the New York Times about how the more Trump is attacked, the more voters, even who don't like the things that he does, feel defensive of him. Did you get a chance to read that piece? I did read it, yes. And what did you think? I think it is confirmation of what I have personally observed in my life. The second I read it, honestly, the first thing I thought is, boy, the New York Times is going to be drugged through the mud for even publishing this, Mm. right? Because that is the reaction right now. I I texted back to you. What I keep seeing is an equal and opposite reaction for every single action. And if we're tired of that, we have to stop doing it. Yeah. And I'm really, really tired of it. And I can't stand the thought that anything I say or any of my reactions would push an independent, moderate, or even Republican voter further to support the president. I can't stand the thought of that. And I've been thinking really about this through the lens of what I'm calling verbal nonviolence. It's a term I've made up. I don't know. It probably existed before me. But just the idea of what we were talking about on last week's show, the difference between what's wrong with you versus we don't do that. And we all see how he functions. We all see what kind of energy her perpetuates and thrives on. And I don't want to be a part of it anymore. I don't want to be a part of Donald Trump's 
a Nazi and anyone who supported Donald Trump is a Nazi. And look, it's the downfall of democracy. And even though sometimes I feel exactly that, I'm just really trying to be responsive and not reactive, not because I think it's morally wrong to be reactive, but because I think it helps him win. And more than anything, I desperately don't want this administration to be successful. And the previous approaches I've taken and I think the left has taken, and I think all of us have taken, are not working. His approval ratings are just fine. And this isn't a call for empathy for his supporters at all. It's just I don't want to perpetuate a cycle that I don't think is serving anyone. And we saw it in the election, and we saw it in the primary, and we just couldn't stop ourselves. And I'm primarily talking to the media. And I just think, y'all, we got to stop ourselves. Like you just said, we just have to stop. We got a message from our listener, Christian, on Instagram that was really consistent with what you read from Ann Helen Peterson. He said that he feels like the president forcibly makes you pay attention to him no matter how much you don't want to. Mm-hmm. He said that he his wife showed him the Melania Coates story. And so he turns away from social media because it's so obnoxious. And then he looks at ESPN and something is streaming about the president and the Eagles. He said there's no respite and no reprieve. And it's true. And I think that what that ultimately has is a diluting effect on the important stories. I think you're absolutely right. There is no mystery about what we're talking about this weekend on social media. There is it, it is not a mystery that we have turned our attention to these nonsense stories about a coat and a dinner instead of talking about children being sexually abused by officers of the United States government in family detention facilities for about 10 years, it sounds like, right? And I think we just each have to make personal choices to zoom way out Sarah, as my resource Sherpa, has offered me, I think, the best resource ever in launching rockets that you've been talking about from Rob Bell. I was thinking about all the things you've turned my attention to. This might be my very favorite. It's so relevant and so great in so many ways, but it has me thinking a lot about parenting. And one of the points that he makes is that as a parent... What you teach your children, what you really try to talk to them about is so diluted by everything they hear from you in the car and just by happenstance. Your intentional teaching moments with your children are diluted by their life experience of you. He says several times, they already know what you think about everything. Mm -hmm. So when you really sit down and focus and think you're creating a moment, you're probably not. And I feel like that's what's happening in the news cycle We think we're just really going to sit down and explain things to each other. But the the conduct that we're all engaging in around politics in general is doing that anyway. And what we're telling each other is just, I don't like you. I don't like I'm against you. I'm against, 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 against. And that leads me to like one more big picture observation, if I may. In thinking about parenting, I've really come to understand that we've been taking goodness for granted Mm. and focusing on success. So with our children, we talk a whole lot about how to make them successful, but not how to help them be good people. And I think in our civic dialogue, we are taking values for granted 
and talking a lot about how to win elections, how to be clever, how to get our message out. And to me, going back to exactly where this started with what President Obama is doing with the New York Times piece with Anne Helen Peterson, we are taking seriousness for granted. And we just we can't do that anymore. One of my favorite things about the Obama article is they said, you know, if you know anything about Obama, if you feel like you understand what motivates him, then you have to understand that his reaction to this is a sign of his optimism, his optimism that, you know, the American experiment is bigger than Donald Trump. And I know like I'm tearing up because sometimes I don't feel that optimism. And I know I'm not alone in that. And it is very hard to focus on the big picture and to think that we have had corrupt presidents and we have had harsh, partisan, violent moments in our history and we have fallen far short of our ideas. And yet still, the American experiment continues. It is the only one I'm willing to put money on at this point in human history. And You know, I just have to remind myself of that. And I feel like, you know, in my personal life, I spend a lot of time and a lot of reading and a lot of meditating trying to quiet the voice of my ego because it does not often serve me. And in so many ways, it's like he is nothing but a giant id. And as a nation, particularly in our media environment and our social media environment, We have to find a space to quiet that voice or to at least ignore it because it only thrives on energy. We do not, hear me, we do not have to ignore the abuse and separation of immigrants and their children in order to ignore the walking id that is Donald Trump. They are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Every minute I spend keyboard ninjing someone about Donald Trump is one less minute I can spend dedicating myself to immigration law so that I can actually help people. So, I mean, it's just, it's, I'm not saying it's hard and I'm not saying it's not, we don't have to, I, I feel like we've, we've put ourselves in this box where you're an immoral person that doesn't see the march of history and authoritarian governments if you don't spend every moment railing about how Donald Trump is the second coming of Satan. And I refuse to buy into that narrative, just like I refuse to buy into his. I also refuse to buy into this civility backlash that's happening. Everywhere Mm -hmm. I turned this weekend, I saw think pieces and tweets about how civility doesn't work when you're faced with the kind of crisis we're faced with. Know that civility only works if we are at it all the time. And that doesn't mean being nice. And that doesn't mean not hurting anyone's feelings. It doesn't mean It doesn't mean an unwillingness to adamantly stand for something. In fact, the greatest civility is the ability to adamantly stand against something without becoming your own version of that thing. And that's what we're talking about. I saw someone, I think it was like Matthew Chapman or somebody who kind of constantly exasperates me um, on Twitter, not because I disagree with him even that much, but just, just always coming at you, you know. You do you, Matthew Chapman, we're just different personalities. But he tweeted something about how the only civility right now that Stephen Miller and someone else, maybe it was Kirsten Nielsen, deserve is like a trial for war crimes. And I thought, but you know what? That is civility. A fair trial is a form of civility. It is a form of saying 
We don't impose punishment without hearing people out. We don't convict people. And it's the opposite of what the president said about people not being entitled to go through our judicial system at the border. When he said no judges, no courts, that's incivility, right? It is civility to put people through that process. And that's all we're talking about. It doesn't mean that you have to put your arms around every single person who disagrees with you and say, oh, you know what? Our positions are exactly equal. That's why I've, and I don't know if it was because I did so much like deep diving into Bayard Rustin for the Pride Month moment, but I have been thinking so much about John Lewis and Martin Luther King and these civil rights leaders. And that's why I keep using the word verbal nonviolence. Like, it's not like the, you know, ask yourself if John Lewis, while he was marching in Zelma, was yelling at the police, calling them racist crackers and the downfall of democratic society. He wasn't, you know, like he, that's not the answer. And not because it's wrong. They were racist and they were a boil on democracy, but because it only fuels a fire, a fire that can only be squelched by, by quiet and respectful, civil disobedience. Civility and civil disobedience are not incompatible. Like, I just, that's, but it's different. Because what I heard in that New York Times article was, when you rail like that, and it the, the railing comes from, I am the moral authority here. I am right. And everyone else is not only wrong, but immoral and unethical. There is a part of almost every human being's bull meter that's going to go off in the face of that level of self-righteousness. Your self-righteousness be, 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 could be fueled by something that is, you could be right in this scenario. I'm not saying you're not, but there is just a certain amount of basic human psychology that's going to react to that. Like, I don't know. And you know what? I don't blame them because we're not right all the time. And a broken clock's right twice a day or whatever that stupid expression is. Sometimes Donald Trump is going to do something Semi-right. And so if all we operate from is he's the second coming of Satan, then we lose a certain sort of moral high ground. This like like the but what but what about isms that Tiffany Bond talks about in our next segment? Like it's just it's it's not a great argument. It just isn't. And I want to win the argument. I want this administration to go out of power so that people are stopped being harmed. The way that the media cycle is running and the way so many of us, including myself, buy into it and perpetuate it is not going to help that happen. And that's what I want more than anything. So let me tell you what I think is an excellent example of this, an example of leadership. And that's Cynthia Nixon, who is a candidate for New York governor. And she was on The View. And she said, basically, I should be eliminated. It no longer serves the moral values of this country. And I thought, thank you. Instead of going on, and which let's be real honest about Cynthia Nixon and the, the, the politics of her race. Railing against Donald Trump would serve her very well. And instead of doing that, she said she presented a solution, one I had not even thought of. That's great leadership. Somebody that says, hey, here's something that is a solution no one's talking about. And I think she's right. 
Beth, the more Beth and I, I know Beth did a bunch of research about ice, the more I'm like, why do we have this? Why are we acting this way? Why are we assuming this is the the default behavior we have to use in the organization that ha- just has to exist on our border? And it hasn't existed that long. Right. Why do we have it? We have it because of September 11th. Mm-hmm. This is something we will return to when we talk about that in July. But we have it because we decided as part of our efforts to combat terrorism after September 11th, we decided that immigration, all immigration, was a threat to our country's existence. And that is a premise that I think we need to reconsider. But it's a premise that's obviously taken hold. We have conflated a lot of things that shouldn't be conflated. But here's what I want you to know. So that started after September 11th. We're talking about a program that is not 20 years old. By 2013, this is from A Short and Brutal History of ICE, which we will link in the show notes. By 2013, the United States was spending more money on immigration enforcement than all other federal criminal law enforcement agencies combined. Partnerships, both formal and ad hoc with local police, have given ICE an unprecedented presence in communities across the country. It also has and makes steady use of its sweeping powers to surveil. This is an agency without proper guardrails. And that's something that, like you've said before, President Trump did not create. And President Trump is in love with, right, this this kind of lawlessness in the name of law and order, is something that the president really seizes onto. And it's something that Congress can do something about. And it won't without our sustained interest and action. I really appreciated an opinion piece from the New York Times that talked about ways that immigration can actually be handled without turning to ICE and agents with weapons and technology that's very scary. Um, We'll share this opinion piece as well. She writes about a family case management program, a pilot started in January 2016, that allowed families seeking asylum to be released together and monitored by caseworkers while their immigration court cases proceeded. Case managers provided asylum seekers with referrals for education, legal services, and housing. They also helped sort out confusing orders about when to show up for immigration court and ICE check-ins. The pilot was implemented with around 700 families, and 99% of immigrants showed up for their hearings. That's incredible. That's incredible. And then she says it also did something Republicans love. It cut government spending. The program cost $36 per day compared with the more than $900 a day it costs to lock up an immigrant parent with two children. The pilot, scheduled to last five years, was abruptly canceled by the Trump administration almost exactly a year ago. Right as this seeming crisis took over. Other alternatives to prison, the article says, has have also worked. ICE has two programs that use electronic ankle monitors, biometric voice recognition software, unannounced home visits, telephone reporting, and global positioning technologies to track people who've been released from detention while their cases are being heard at a cost of $0.30 cents to $8.04 per person per day. There is a less expensive, more humane more effective way to deal with this crisis than holding parents and their children hostage from one another while we ask them to voluntarily deport themselves. 
And that's what we should be talking about, not Melania's jacket. For this Pride Week Month moment, I decided to do an object, not a person. And I want to talk about the rainbow flag. I thought that this would be a great way to end our Pride Month history segment by talking about the history of what has become the international symbol for gay pride, which is the rainbow flag. So the rainbow flag was designed in 1978 by Gilbert Baker, who was a San Francisco artist and was really created it as a result of a call for really they wanted a community symbol. There had been prolific use of the pink triangle, which was popular um, as a symbol of pride. It was the symbol that Nazis used for the LGBT community and to sort of reclaim that symbol. It had become a, a, a symbol of gay pride, but they wanted a flag. And inspired by the flag of the race, as uh, Baker designed a flag with eight stripes. So the original flag had hot pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sun, green for serenity with nature, turquoise for art, indigo for harmony, and violet for spring. He There are these great stories about um, Gilbert Baker using giant trash cans to to dye all the strips and then sewing them together by hand. My favorite fun fact about this is that Gilbert Baker did drag, and his drag name was Busty Ross, like Betsy Ross. I love that so much. Um, So he designed the flag for the 1978 Gay Freedom Day Parade when it first began to be used and be symbolism for the gay community. So it was used in New York. It's been used all over the world since then. And really what's fun is in the when it first started, I mean, anything that was basically rainbow stripes was good enough. So they would use the cooperative flags, Buddhist flags, Sufi flags, Tibetan flags. But after the November 1978 assassination of um, the openly gay San Francisco supervisor Harvey Milk, they really wanted to print up and have it be used more widely. So he went to the San Francisco-based Paramount Flag Company, and they began selling a seven-striped one because the hot pink was too expensive. So hot pink got dropped and for a while, and it was a seven-striped flag. Now, the current version also has added the pink back into it. So now the six colors were incorporated into a six-striped version, but then they added the pink at the bottom. So the current version is red, orange, yellow, green, just one blue, and then pink at the bottom. I am going to do sort of a more expansive version of Gilbert Baker's life on Patreon, the flag designer. But I thought that the flag itself was such, it's such, become such an important symbol. I think it's really important to know how it started, who designed it, and how it's evolved over time. Thank you, Sarah, for that uplifting Pride Month moment. Next up, we are going to talk with Tiffany Bond, also an uplifting conversation about a real person running for Congress in the way that we all wish politics could be. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. 
And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are so excited to be talking with Tiffany Bond today. I cannot tell you how many listeners have said you guys have to get her on your show. She's doing something really exciting and different. So this has been a long time coming. Tiffany, you are running for Congress in Maine's 2nd Congressional District, and you were just telling us before we started that there are actually more independents than Republicans or Democrats there, and we need to hear all about that. Well, Maine itself just leans fiercely independent. Like, if you want Maine to do anything, tell us to do the opposite. <laughs> we don't like being told what to do. We really march to our own drum here, which is one of the things I love about Maine. Um, but if you are to go up to people, so in Maine we have to gather signatures, and I had to have at least 2,000, and it turns out maybe not everybody knows where they're registered to vote or if they're registered to vote. So you need way more than 2,000. So I had to gather a lot of signatures that required talking to a lot of people. Um, I got 1,663 of those signatures myself. So that was a big chunk of time. And that that, I don't think that really, it kind of hits home how much time it takes. The district is enormous. It takes longer to get from the bottom to the top of the district than it does from the bottom to Manhattan. 
if you're driving. So it's a it's a really large district geographically, uh, and most of our towns are under a thousand people. So when you ask people, you know, are you, are you, the, you would you like to sign my petition? I'm, I'm running for Congress. Would you like to help me get on the ballot? The first question, of course, is are you a Democrat or Republican? And when you say I'm an independent, you generally get one of two answers. You either get me too <laughs> or you get, well, I'm really either a Democrat or a Republican. I, I, I registered to vote in the primaries, but I'm really independent. You know, I'm, I'm registered with the party, but I, I'm actually independent. It's almost it's almost like people, whether they're Republican or Democrat, yeah, they still don't want to be in somebody else's club. We all want to be in our own club here in Maine. I think that's great. So did that make it easier or more challenging, you think, to get on the ballot? Um, I would not say the getting on the ballot is easy. <laughs> and, and that goes if you're in a party, too. It's a trade-off. So if you are in a party here, and this is going to get into the kind of wonky nerd contingent you have if they're into this. If you are in a party, there's things you get. You have events, you have structure, you have people who are sort of built-in volunteers. That's really helpful. Um, but, and you only have to get half as many signatures. So where I needed 2,000 signatures, um, somebody running as a Republican or a Democrat would only need 1,000, but they have to be from people in your party. The good news is if people show up at an event and they say they're a Democrat, you probably got a valid signature there and it's probably going to certify. We have a multi-step process. So um, you collect signatures. If you're independent, anybody who's a registered voter can sign. But again, if you're an independent and it's anybody, a lot of people don't know if they're registered to vote or where their last address was. And so a lot of those don't certify. I had a really pretty low rate that didn't certify. Mine was under 18%, but a lot of um, campaigns I've heard have around 30. I, I haven't verified that information, but that's what I've kind of heard in, in process. Um, so you have to go and collect the signatures and they have to be collected from registered voters in your district. And then you have to go to each individual town and have them certify the signatures. So we check every single signature in the state of Maine to make sure that the person is actually a registered voter where they say they're a registered voter. Um, and then you go get all those. Um, if you go to the clerks directly, they will notarize them for you for a fee. Or if you don't want to pay that fee or if you're sending them in the mail before you go to the clerks, you actually have to stop by a notary and swear that you collected all of those signatures yourself. Um, then you go pick them all up. Or if you have enough time, you get them mailed back to you. And you repeat that process over and over and over again until you have the number you need. So it's a really intense process. I mean, I would say that we don't have a lot of fraud getting on the ballot here. Yes, uh, although we've had some interesting some interesting things, particularly this year with other people getting on the ballot. So I, I recommend Googling Maine politics. It's very entertaining. Well, tell us about what motivated you to run. Part of the reason that I think listeners connected us to you is because you do these epic Twitter threads where you've actually read what's in a bill and explain that to people, which is right up our alley here. Is that kind of the genesis of your run, just that we have all this going on and no one seems to know what they're really talking about? What really caused me to run was um, was more than just reading the laws. It was that my clients were getting impacted. I have a lot of clients in the second congressional district. I worked there for several years, and the average household income of the second congressional district is about forty thousand dollars a year. If you compare that to the first, it's uh, the first congressional district's more like sixty. So it's it's a pretty um, rural, very poor area. And a lot of people have more than one child and the wages are fairly low. 
And so if you try to separate out those households, you know, whether you're a million dollar household, you're a $40,000 a year household, you have way less money than you did before. And if you're in the $40,000 or less, which many are, then you really are going to struggle. And a lot of the safety nets have been picked at pretty hard. And it's in a way that's not necessarily beneficial to society. And it's in a way that probably costs us more. Things like health care, you know, if you have um, parents that are separated and mom has been out of the workforce taking care of the kids and the kids, maybe the youngest ones in pre-K, uh, our pre-K programs here, a lot of them don't run full day. I know the one that my son was in ran from like 8.20 to 1.20, so not enough time to do anything other than maybe a load of laundry in there. It's, um, it's very difficult to work with that. Uh, so, you know, you have to look at what makes sense as far as balancing the, the programs that governments help with and the programs, um, the impact of programs when we are not helping people out who are in the the lower strata. And the bottom line is if we don't have those safety social nets in there, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it's going to cost us all more. It's going to cost us all more in humanity. It's going to cost us all more in actual money. So it's it makes sense to work on those. And so I read the bills because they do impact my job. Federal law has a lot more um, interactions with family law than I think a lot of other areas of law. We, you know, tax code impacts us, how they handle um, Social Security disability impacts us, how they handle a wide range of stuff. It impacts family law. Um, Health care is a big one. And as I've been reading through the bills, they've just been getting progressively worse. And they're progressively worse to the point where they're causing actual harm now. So I started looking at the people who were jumping in the race. And there was a shocking amount of men. (laughs) Uh, I think think at the high point, I was running against um, 11 men. There was a really lovely woman who popped in the race for about five minutes. Danielle, it was actually a little longer than five minutes. It was a couple weeks. Uh, But she popped in and out. And so it's been me running against a gaggle of men. And they just didn't have the skill set where they really focused on the words on the paper. And that's important. We've been missing that a lot in Congress. So I wanted us to have someone, at least an option, that said, hey, you know, If you've always wanted to kind of sort of send your best friend who also happens to know about the law, who you trust to take care of you, and they actually pay attention to it, and they'll explain it to you if you want to know, but maybe you don't actually don't want to know most of the time. You just want to know that somebody who does know it is there. Wouldn't it be great to have that person running? Um, Just a normal middle class person. And, And what that evolved into is sort of a personal challenge, like can a middle class qualified person run for Congress without selling out, without taking huge amounts of donor money, without taking any money at all. So I'm actually running my campaign for less than $5,000 and um, just be qualified and do the job and do the job for a paycheck. So you always know who they're working for and do it with ethics. And so that was sort of my personal challenge. Can I, as a middle-class person do this job? Can I pass through this reality TV show interview that is a total circus to a very grown-up, very responsible job that requires somebody who not just understands the law, but fundamentally loves it and wants to protect it. Well, it's like you're saying, do we still have a citizen government? It's amazing. Yeah, no, well, but isn't that the question? I mean, how many people do you talk to and they say, oh, well, Congress isn't like us, but they should be, 
right? I mean, not everybody should be a lawyer, but we should have a few lawyers. Not everybody should be a doctor, but we should have a few doctors. We should have some people who've been single parents. We should have some people who've seen or felt the impact of these laws. We should have people who, when they read the laws on the page, they aren't ethereal. They need to be real. You know, they need to know that when you put a little asterisk in there, the difference between and and or is whether or not kids eat. That's important. And we've been skipping that. We, I mean, we have people that aren't proficient in reading the bills. I've had a few people tell me, oh, they've got staff for that. No, that, that's the job. That's the whole job, right? It's such an important job that they really didn't give Congress much else to do because these federal laws, they are the framework for our country. And so if we don't have people in there that A, love them, that B, are really committed to making sure they're the best laws that we can make that are that are safe, that are cost effective, that they aren't too much of a burden, that are also humane and that really make for a better society. And if we don't have people that really see themselves as sort of guardians of the law, I mean, that's that's the best superhero power I have. I mean, I've got pens in my hair. I've got post-its all over the place. I definitely am not who you want to call in a car accident. But if you want somebody to safeguard your law and say, this is bad, we shouldn't do it, that's the closest I have. And I promise not to wear spandex. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and as someone who's served as the staff, when people say, oh, they have staff for that, that is a not only are most congressional offices understaffed because the budget cuts and a lot of reasons, not only are they dealing with constituent services and a lot of other things there. It's not that they're bad people. They're not. But it's also a incredibly limited life experience. It is most congressional staffers are from upper income families because they can afford to live on very low congressional salaries in a very high cost of living city like Washington, D.C. They come from a a sort of very small pool of college experiences and life experiences. And so even if you want to say, oh, they have staff for that. Yeah, but the staff's experience, that's not a citizen government anyway. I mean, it is, but it's just a very limited type of citizen. Well, and if you want to have a staff book club where People take off chunks or take, they take the whole amount, but the, the person who's voting on it still reads it and you get different different perspectives. That's fantastic. I mean, that's a great way to, to run it. But, you know, really staff should be used for things like please pull my cross references because that slows my speed down in reading. I need to be able to focus on the law. And if you can get me a binder ready to go with all the cross references and their tab, and that's a very administrative task that takes a lot of time, then I can cruise through a bill in a half or a third of the time. You know, there are things you can do to make sure that you have the ability to read all those pages. But, you know, reading, understanding, being able to phone a friend who's a specialist, you're not going to be able to send people to Congress that are specialists in every single thing. You need to send people with a wide berth of experiences that are reasonable, that have the ability to know when something is beyond their capacity and ask for additional feedback and ask for feedback from more than one source and know how to trust those sources. Those are really important skills. And, you know, they don't necessarily come from college, but they may. And they don't necessarily come from life experience, but they usually do. And what we've been sending is people that maybe don't have that, those backgrounds. And so we're getting laws that reflect that. And we're getting laws that Maybe, maybe in a theoretical world seem seem really great. Like before I had a lot of life experience, I was all for work requirements, right? If somebody is lazy and they're getting benefits, shouldn't they work? That sounds really good. That sounds like a great way to protect taxpayer dollars. If you can work, you should. But those work requirements, they don't capture a, a lot of harm that they do. And I don't 
I don't think the harm that they cause is worth the benefit. You know, we have a lot of people out there right now talking about how they've helped people find self-sufficiency and they haven't. They've just helped people get more poor. If you have somebody who can't work because they're 50 miles from the nearest job, people say, well, move. How do you move? If you don't have the money from a job, you know, the average move is what, five to $10,000. You're not going to just be like, oh, I think I'm going to move to downtown Portland, Maine, where there's jobs, but the rents are almost as high as Seattle. That's insane. You know, you don't have the capacity to do that. You certainly don't have your first, last and deposit. I mean, what are you going to do? Backpack down and hope that there's a youth hostel? It's not practical. Or we say, well, you know, get childcare. Childcare costs as much as a minimum wage per hour here in many cases for young children. Um, and that's even with just one child. Um, I know when I was looking at programs, I have two children. And when I was looking at programs, it was going to be five to $600 minimum for childcare for the two of them. At which point in time I was like, well, geez, maybe I should not work and I'm an attorney. So, um, it doesn't take into account that people often have undiagnosed disabilities and we don't have healthcare access for everybody so that we can get those treated. We would probably gain a tremendous amount if we had better functional access and and I'm open to what that looks like but we need better functional access for people because we punish people for not being able to work but we don't give them ways to get out of that loophole we don't give people ways to handle untreated mental illness we don't give people ways to handle untreated addiction issues and depression. And and those are things that really keep people out of the workforce. We also don't have a way to factor in if people are taking care of other people with disabilities who might be friends or extended family. And and work requirements hurt all of those things. They also hurt moms who are out of the workforce or dads, but it's usually moms here, um, where maybe they stepped out and now that they are technically eligible to work, they, they have to be the person that sits out anytime a kid gets sick. They have to be done in time to get kids off the bus. And, you know, though in rural areas, those bus routes can be longer. So maybe you can have enough time to work a full eight hour shift. You know, if you're working an eight hour shift at Dunkin' Donuts and you have to call out because you have a couple of kids, you're going to be fired very quickly. As you are talking to Maine voters about these really personal, substantive, enduring issues, how much are you dealing with the the national circus around the Trump administration? You know, I don't um, talk about Donald Trump very often. Um, I talk God about the policy. You. Process. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, the bottom line is uh, whether I I love him or I don't, and I I don't hide the fact that I didn't vote for him. I think that there's probably some good and bad in in everybody. I don't know that I find that much good in some of the administration policies, but when you hire somebody that doesn't have a background in how government works, you know, I think everybody went who voted for him and I'm, I'm hypothesizing cause I did not said, you know, maybe if we have a businessman, they'll be able to run it like a business, but government fundamentally just does not run like a business and it shouldn't. Um, I think it's good to bring in business consultants, but you know, sometimes you have to learn the hard way. Um, I, I, I can't change whether or not Donald Trump's president. I'm I'm not in charge of that. There's not a vote up for it. So it I'm not going to spin my wheels fighting with people about it. I think what we can all agree on is Congress is being negligent right now. And they've been negligent for a really long time. This isn't new. This isn't a Donald Trump thing or a Obama thing. It's it's that Congress for a really long time has not been taking their job seriously. 
And for a really long time, they have been not paying as much attention to the details as they should. And I think that's something that's Republican, Democrat, independent. I think we all agree that Congress is having a heck of a time doing their job. And I think that's because we've hired the wrong people for that job. So rather than focus on a lot of the national policy issues, and I will, I will, I will absolutely speak out on policy issues that are meaningful and important and violate the constitution or our human rights issues. I, I have been very vocal lately about separating children at the border. Not only is it inhumane and a human rights violation, it's child abuse and it's expensive. So I don't care if you're a Democrat mm-hmm. and you're looking at it from more the human rights aspect, or if you're a Republican that really, really, really wants people to quit spending your taxpayer dollars, this is just a bad idea. It's a bad program. It's a bad policy choice. So I do speak out on specific policies, but I don't speak out about the administration itself um, because it's it's like arguing settled law. There's really not a point in that right now. Um, we have a pretty red district and a lot of my clients um, voted for Donald Trump and Republicans in general. I voted for Republicans in the past. Um, 20-ish years ago, I was a Republican. I just don't like party lines. I don't like the confinement of that. So, you know, there, there are a lot of people that voted for him and no, I didn't. And we get along a lot of other subjects and it's more productive to find our common ground and things that we know are broken and we all know need to be fixed and work on those, then focus our energy on this circus that the media is making it. It's the media is making it that way. The administration's making it that way. We're fighting with each other and we're fighting about stuff that either isn't important or that we actually agree on. Mm. Well, and I think that's probably why we should have a few more independents in Congress. Uh, you know, I think it's really easy to vilify the other side. I will talk to Republicans that think Democrats are just histrionic, nutty people that are coming at them in pussy hats. Yeah. And I will talk to Democrats. And, and there are some Democrats who think that Republicans are just all racist, horrible, awful people. And certainly there's a slice of truth for both of those, right. but it certainly doesn't apply to everybody in the groups. So I find that most Republicans here are very sensible. I find that most Democrats here are very sensible. I find they all want the same things. We all want a functional economy. We want a safe place to raise our families. We want to not feel like the government is intruding on our lives, although that happens in different ways. Um, and and we have very, very similar end goals. We just have different paths to get there. And so we need to use those paths to make a better central path. I think that that Maine presents such an awesome opportunity for that because there seems to be like some states in which the state identity as independent is still strong enough to overcome the national environment of partisanship. And I think that's really amazing. And I'm super jealous of it as a Kentuckian. (laughs) Well, I think it's actually increasing. Like, yeah, there's there are so many people that identify as independents here. Right. It's it's quite literally almost every person I talk to, they might say, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm registered as a Republican or registered Democrat, but I don't like some of the stuff that they're right. doing. Right? And there's, there are valid benefits to both sides and there's valid criticisms of both sides, right? If you look at things like healthcare, it, the, I don't like the ACA. Um, I don't think we should remove it. 
I think we should repair it, or if we're going to replace it, have something truly functional to replace it with. I was very disappointed in the Republican bill. They had seven years to accomplish something better, and I was so excited. So I was very disappointed when I read it and saw that it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think but both Democrats and Republicans say we have this horrible, horrible insurance system right now. And there are benefits. There are people who are captured by the safety net that were not captured for. And that's great. And there are some losers. And those losers tend to be middle class, um, especially if you're self-employed. And Maine doesn't have a lot of big commerce. So there is a very high percentage of people in Maine that are either self-employed or work for small employers. I'm self-employed. I'm that person that the Republicans cite when they talk about how horrible the ACA is. Last year, my premiums were almost $1,000 a month, and they covered wow. nothing. That's I ended up yeah. spending almost $20,000 last year on health care for my family of four that was healthy. Yeah. Right. I my son, he is going into second grade this year. But when he was has had just gone into kindergarten, I had the same plan. I've had a slightly different plan this year. I finally have could afford an upgrade. So maybe I'll spend a little bit less on healthcare. But he had one night where he lost an argument to a radiator. It happens. Mm. We've got houses here. And he had to get two staples in his head. And because it's Maine, and it was a Sunday night, um, nothing's open. It's, you know, if it had happened at two o'clock on a Wednesday, I would have taken him to his regular doctor, but it really couldn't wait because it was bleeding pretty heavily. So we went to the emergency room. I have insurance, no biggie. No, it was over $1,500 for two staples. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, add that to the premiums that are $1,000 a month almost. You know, it, it really adds up. And so when the Republicans say this system is broken and you're in really red areas with a lot of self-employed, that's what they're talking about. It is broken for a big chunk of people. But instead of, say, the, you know, the Democrats working on small pieces and saying, we totally agree with you. Here's like six things we think could fix. Can we work on that? Or the Republicans, you know, they're saying, let's just tear it all down because it sucks so bad. But the thing that we want to go back to doesn't exist anymore. So you can use that tension to actually make better law and, and create a better healthcare system. And that's what I would like to see us have independence for, because we need some people that can get in there and get them talking again. Everybody has stopped talking. So, Tiffany, let's fast forward and say that it is January of 2019 and you have won your race and you have been sworn in as the representative for Maine's second congressional district, how are you going to spend your first 90 days? What what does our best friend, lawyer, fellow middle-class mom do as soon as she gets to Congress? So I'm a realist. And I think you can really pick apart maybe the congressional hopefuls that aren't. Because I can tell you in the first 90 days, I probably won't accomplish anything. You're probably not going to accomplish anything until you've been there for a full year because you're new. You have to learn the ropes. You have to learn um, the procedure. I know the law part. I can read the law pretty well, but how the intricacies work, how everything works together, even if you've studied it, if you haven't actually done the job, it's going to take you probably six months to become even slightly proficient. So I have an, an upper leg and that I can get in there and I can at least start reading law and marking it up. But that doesn't mean I'll have developed any of the relationships where anybody will really listen to me yet. So it's going to depend a little bit on the composition of Congress. And I think we need to be realistic with what we expect from our congressional representatives. We need to send reasonable, balanced people that pay attention to what's going on and have productive conversations with others about how to make it better. We don't need to send people who say, in my first 90 days or day one, I'm doing X. Because anybody who says that, 
doesn't know how Congress works. Mm. It is very difficult to get a bill through in 90 days at all. I mean, we have children being ripped away from parents and it's been going on for what, 45 days or more now. And we still don't even have a bill that's been brought to the floor to be voted on for something that's massive and important like that. And it should be an easy fix. It should be like a 10 page or less bill. Boom. You know, it should be a really easy, really perfunctory. Hey, let's not do this. It's a bad idea. Clearly, Congress needs to make a law about it. And we can't even get that through. So uh, I think that what I would do probably the first 90 days and the first whole year is work on building those relationships, work on getting a, a team together that's really, truly proficient and challenging my fellow reps to say, you know, hey, you need to read this and I'll get together and read it with you if you want. And I don't care if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, you know, there is no shame in saying I don't know something. There is no shame in saying I need to learn. There is shame in saying I'm just not going to bother to learn. So I'm happy to work with people, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. I'm happy to work on coalitions. Um, I've had some uh, discussions with some of the other women who are running. We've talked about maybe we need a mom caucus. Let's <laughs> send the reasonable moms just sit around a table and rip bills apart. Um, so I wish I had a more concrete answer for you, but the answer is I'm going to go be reasonable and I'm going to go attempt to be as proficient as I can at the job. And I'm going to go and point out problems. One thing that I will do, and I don't take a whole lot of pledges because I think that you box yourself into really unpleasant places, but I will not vote for any bill I haven't read. If I have not been provided sufficient time, the answer is no. I don't care if it's the best bill Ever. There is nothing in Congress that's urgent for the most part. Almost everything that's urgent, there's an executive power for. If Mars attacks us, we have an option. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, the urgent stuff, There's that's what the executive power is for. Law is supposed to be slow, thoughtful, and deliberative because it matters. So the, the nonsense about here's 400 pages, vote on it in eight hours, we've got to stop doing that because it's encouraging the system. And I think maybe we only need 10 people like me that say that, that say, I am going to vote no on every single thing you try to take to the floor. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if some lobbyist said it's a great thing. I'm not voting for it. So Tiffany, I think one of the reasons our listeners were so um, intrigued and keep pointing us in your direction is your um, pledge to not take donations. Tell us how you reach that conclusion. Tell us how that works in reality on a campaign. So that loops back to the whole, can a middle-class person do it, right? I am, I am adamant about changing the way money is in our political system. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's productive. And I think it's making bad law. I think it's harming our country. So I think the only way you can get money out of the system is by getting money out of the system. And I am, one of the few things I'm zealous about is living my message, right? So if, if I say that I think we need to get money out of politics, that means I can't take any. I, I can't. Yeah. And I'm middle class. I don't, I don't have a giant checkbook where I can write myself a $200,000 check. That would be super because then I could pay off my student loans. So <laughs> wouldn't that be great? I, I really am that friend just like you with the student loans and the car payment and, you know, paying for all of the stuff my children need and the, the swim lessons, right? It all adds up. So um, the what I did is I sat down and I thought, how can I not take money? Like, uh, clearly there's got to be some money. There's got to be some exposure. And I also really want to sincerely help the district because, you know, I've 
my district, I've been in their financials. (laughs) I have seen how much money they don't have. I have seen their budgets. That's that when you are in family law, you see every little bit of how people spend money and you get to watch people critique whether or not you got a latte that day or gosh, I see you went and got your hair done. Was that really necessary? When we're talking about things like spousal support, uh, which is more commonly known as alimony, So uh, as I went through that, I thought, you know, we really, we have a lot of need in our district. And what we need in our district is we have a lot of really, really wonderful not-for-profits. And what we don't have is news. So if you were to watch the winter news in Maine, and I cite this one because it's most interesting and, and kind of comedic. So our news in, in Maine is it's about 15 minutes of high school sports, about 10 minutes of weather, and about five minutes of who put their snowmobile in the lake last weekend. We <laughs> legitimately had one weekend where like 11 people lost their snowmobiles in lakes. I have so many words for that, but I'll just leave it for you to imagine. So we, we don't have a lot of news going on here. We have a lot of quirky, wonky little local interest stories. So if I can get people, instead of giving me money, take that same amount of money and give it to a charity. And if five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 pours into a charity, I won't need ads because I'll just be on the TV. Right. I would much rather be a special interest story that talks about a congressional candidate. Right now, I'm asking people to donate to food banks because we're going into the summer and there's a lot of children that don't have access to food. But if they are on food stamps, they're they're getting the same amount as they do year round, but they're not getting the breakfast and lunch that they get at school. That puts a lot of strain on families. And even if there are programs where they can go and eat during the summer, that doesn't mean their parents have the the money or the time to drive the 20, 30, 40 minutes each way to where those programs are available when the parents are trying to work. So um, I've asked people to help kind of front load the, the food banks. We've got a few really good ones and we've got some smaller ones that are sort of all over the place. One of the things I love, as much as we fight with each other, we're very neighborly here. I, I, anywhere you go, everyone is very nice. A lot of times people from away will say, oh, yeah, I went to Maine once. And I'm like, great, where'd you go? And they're like, oh, it's a cute little town. And I'm like, uh-huh. so nice and i'm like "Uh uh-huh and they're like and we had a lobster roll and i'm like not helping (laughs) all the buildings were these cute little white houses i'm like still not helping you could be almost anywhere in maine with this description oh but it was beautiful yeah yeah anywhere in maine (laughs) so uh, you know maine is a very beautiful place it's very neighborly and i thought that was a great start but not everybody wants to donate money there is a lot of donor fatigue this year there are so many candidates yeah so uh, it's so many, right? Like there were, especially before the primaries, there were, like I said, 11 men at one point in time with my race with me. So we are down to four on our final ballot, but that's still a lot of donor fatigue. At one point in time, we had I think, two dozen candidates for governor just in the state of Maine. So um, another way that people can help is they can shop. We have small businesses that love support. And if you are socially awkward, it's a great way to help. Um, you don't have to put on pants. You can do it right from your house. You can order online, go on Etsy, go anywhere online, find anybody anywhere in the district, which is most of the state. And you can order and in the special instructions or comments put that you're purchasing um, to support the campaign of Tiffany Bond for Congress. Everybody's trying to get their five-star reviews, so they will... Oh, cool. So, you know, the first place you look is the special instructions or comments because you want that good review online. And we've got hundreds, literally hundreds of towns with less than um, a thousand people. I figure if 10, 15 people in each town um, get an order from anywhere in the country, my, I designed my campaign so anyone anywhere can participate if you really want to see a difference in how politics are run, you know, make a donation, shop, buy something. 
And if that happens, I won't need to pay for mailers because when you live in a town of less than a thousand people, there really is nothing to talk about. That's genius. I love it. I think that should be a national story. And I hope someone hears this podcast who will write the story of the woman who literally has a donate button on her website that when you push it, it says, no, thank you. Here's how you can invest in my state. I think it's brilliant and love what you're doing and really appreciate you coming on to talk with us about this. Well, the point is to make people's lives better, right? So make them better. You, you, you know, you change things by changing the way you do it. You, you make people's lives better by making choices that improve their life, not just ignoring everything. Tell our community where they can find you, where they can shop and support and on social media and on your website. Sure. I'm pretty easy to find. So my website is bondlikejames2018.com. <laughs> Uh, my, uh, Twitter is at Tiffany bond and it's Tiffany spelled just like the jewelry store. My Facebook is facebook.com forward slash, uh, bond 2018. My Instagram is Tiffany L bond. Unfortunately, I didn't grab that one in time to skip the middle initial. And, um, I'm most active on Twitter. You'll see me do live tweet readings of bills. And that's also where you'll see a lot of information about the main raisings. Please come join. If, if you think that the having somebody who reads those bills is something that you'd like to see in Congress. And if if you think having that dialogue and having somebody who really explains how they work is something that you really want to see there, I don't care where you are in the country or the world, you know, make a $5 donation every week to a different charity in my district. Um, you can make a purchase, anything you want, whatever, whatever you've been needing. If you need a whoopie pie, we've got them. (laughs) Maine makes great stuff. So, you know, go shopping. We'd love to have it. Um, and, and really try and make politics a more positive place where we can be working on what's better instead of yelling about how the other side's awful. Mm. I love it. I wish I could come vote for you. Thank you very much. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? We had a delightful weekend because my girls went to see my husband's parents. And so we got to do lots of fun things. The thing I want to talk about the most is that we went to a concert at Riverbend in Cincinnati, which is kind of a place where like, if you are really excited, this this is what my friend said, if you're really excited about the concert lineup, you know, you've hit that 35 plus demographic (laughs) because it's a lot of like nostalgia. So we went to see Bare Naked Ladies who are celebrating their 30th anniversary this year. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Katie Tunstall opened. It was okay. It was weird. She was on the stage totally by herself, not with a band. Oh, that is And weird. was kind of like running her own soundboard and playing the kazoo. Some. It was strange. <laughs> but then Better Than Ezra played and then Bare Naked Ladies. Bare Naked Ladies, fine. Okay, whatever. Better Than Ezra, amazing. They mm-hmm. put on an amazing show. Was so great about it. I looked up their ages. They're all like late 40s, early 50s. They had on button-down short sleeve shirts, jeans, <laughs> tennis shoes. It was like a bunch of super sexy dads got together for like a campy, let's sing the songs we used to love tour. But they were phenomenal and totally in on the joke. Like at one I point, the lead singer asked people if they had a lot of hair product going on that might be flammable because his next set was going to be on fire. And Chad and I looked at we were like, they have dad jokes too. It's perfect. Um, so it was so much fun and it just made aging look really great because they sounded better than ever. I've always loved their music and could listen to it all day, but we just had the best time. If you get a chance to see Better Than Ezra, you just have to go. It was pure joy. Well, I also had a kids-free weekend. My best girlfriend, Annie, friend of the pod, she's been on the pod before, 
um, and I went to Nashville. She'd never been there. So we took a, just a car trip through Music Row on Saturday night. And she was like, yeah, driving through is good enough. I was like, I really didn't think this was going to be your scene. Um, Nashville has just taken off. It is a hipster haven. They can't build stuff fast enough in that town. So it's always kind of a fun um, adventure to go there because I grew up going there because my whole fam- a lot of my aunts and uncles live there. So I was definitely going to Nashville before it was cool. But we had lots of yummy food and we went shopping and we went to the Frist, which has an amazing collection right now called Chaos and Awe about modernity. And they had like a virtual reality piece you could like float through, which was amazing. And we went to Ann Patchett's bookshop. I want to say Patronus. That's not right. It's Parnassus. Because <laughs> I just live in Harry Potter world all the time. Um, and that was awesome. It's much bigger than the last time I went there. So we just had a little Nashville weekend. And then when we got back, um, I had to take my oldest child to summer camp. And it's awful and I hate it. And I want him to come home already. So um. maintaining my... Um, <laughs> striving towards Beth non-attachment towards parenting. Like, I was like, don't go. And he was like, Mom, you signed me up. I didn't even really want to go. And I'm like, I know, but I think it's important. But don't go stay here. Oh, I cried. I hate it. I just hate it. I'm just going to be honest. Why do you hate it? I don't like not being able to talk to him. Like, it really bothers me. Like, there's no calling. Luckily, our rector is the chaplain this week. And I've been texting him. And I was like, Father Charles, I need you to tell me how my baby's doing. I'm not standing for this. It's outrageous. Like, I just want to know how he's doing. Like, I don't have to be... Next to him all the time, but the idea that I can't, like, I don't know. And plus, it's hard. He's so far away. It's like two hours away. Like, if you say camp all day, that's far. Oh, God. That is far. Two hours away is far for a nine-year-old. Thank you. And I can't talk to him. I don't know. They they claim they're going to post pictures. There's been no posting of pictures. He's only been there less than 24 hours, but I don't care. I wanted some pictures by now. And I just... I want to know how he's doing, and I love him, and I just like checking in. Like, he goes to camp all day. It doesn't bother me. He's, like, gone 8 to 4. I'm like, whatever. He'll come home and tell me about it. It's just this is a long stretch to not know what he's doing, if he's okay. I just love him. I want to talk to him so bad. If he weren't okay, they would let you know. He's great. He's living his life. I bet he's going to come home so excited and thrilled to tell you everything about it. And you'll have wonderful conversations, and he will have missed you, and it will make it fantastic for you guys to be together again. Ugh. Whatever. I just want him to be home now. I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. I just, it's the, it's just the lack of, like, if there was like a 24 hour security cam I could just log in and look at, that would make me feel better. You know, surveillance is what I'm talking about here, basically. If you do not listen to the nuanced life and would like to hear more about these differences between us, <laughs> that um, is the fun place. fact. So I'm in Nashville this weekend away from my husband and children. And I go down this very bad Google hole about child drowning because a friend of mine had a friend whose three-year-old drowned, and I just, like, read all her posts, and then it just continued to be Google searches. It was bad. Although, I learned some things, like, 80% of drownings are males or boys. Discuss. 80%. Let's talk about that. I have three boys. 80%. Can you believe that statistic? Because we all hover over our girls more. Yeah, you absolutely do. I watch you people on the playground. You're always on your girls. Don't try that. It's not dangerous. Don't do that. Get down. No, that's for sure. And boys apparently, like, do more. Like, girls... It's in the like the stereotypical study was like they're laying outside the water. The boys are in the water, especially natural water. As you get older, it's more likely that you'll drown in natural water. Kids drown in pools, but not while swimming. Most childhood accidental drownings do not happen while swimming. They happen while you're like inside making lunch or something and somebody gets out on the pool. Just FYI, security announcement. So anyway, so I'm like going down this very dark child drowning hole. And so I and then I'm like, oh. 
I can just look at my baby whenever I want because I have a security cam. So I definitely opened up the security camera from Nashville and just watched him sleep for a while. Don't judge me. Don't judge me, everyone. I just sometimes you need to see him. And then the next night I was like, oh, I want to look at Felix again. And he wasn't there. He was, I, like, And I knew in my head he's spending the night with – he's probably spending the night with my parents because they'd gone to the water park. But I definitely woke Nicholas up over the Alexa and was like, where's the baby? And he was like, he's at your parents' crazy face. And I was like, okay, I knew that. I just needed it confirmed. <laughs> Your silence is not helping. Not helping. <laughs> well, I do, I'm I'm just trying to think of a helpful thing to say because so I'm the person like so we have um some cameras too. And if Chad and I are at a movie or something and he pulls up the cameras, it drives me crazy. I do not want to see when I'm not here. If something's wrong and I'm not here, I can't do anything about it except sit and go crazy. And if Something was wrong. I would know. Like we have systems in place in our lives for people to tell me that, and I just I can't. I can't hover over my children through technology or in person. I just I'm really not a hover either. I don't hover at the playground, but sometimes when I'm having my foreboding joy, I love my children so much. Something is definitely going to go wrong. The live cam helps me. Also, have you seen? This is related. I swear. Have you seen Incredibles too? Yes. Okay, the the oh, how did you feel about the opening vignette? I loved it. I loved it too, and I I just was like, I know exactly how that mom, that mother feels. Yes, I'm gonna eat my dumpling baby so it can never ever go away or get hurt. Oh, pause. No, I thought you were talking about the opening vignette where they're like, oh my gosh, it's been 14 years since the first one. It took us a while to no, make no, no. this. I'm talking about the that. dumpling baby. I did not like the dumpling. I was thing surprised when you said all. you liked it. No, I was like, no. I feel you, dumpling la- baby lady. I know exactly what this is trying to talk about. Where they're just so cute and you love them so much, you're just like, I'm gonna eat you, and then you will be mine forever. I no, get it. Chad and I slowly. We were sitting with the two girls in between us, and we slowly turned to look at each other in horror. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> that is seems to be the right universal now? response to this. Like the Law Mamas Facebook group I'm on. Everybody, what, this one was like, that was so disturbing, and everybody else was like, I get it. Like my, the funniest part though is my mom was like. I don't get it. And Griffin goes, Mimi, it's a metaphor. <laughs> oh, I love it. Griffin. But no, I get it. I get it. I get the dumpling baby. I told him the other day when he was going away to camp, I was like, see, this is a dumpling baby moment. I just want to gobble you up. And that way I always know where you are and safely living in my tummy like the dumpling baby. I get it. I get you, dumpling baby animator. I feel what you were laying down there. Yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> Yeah, so if you enjoy this conversation, we're having lots more just like it on The Nuance Life. This week on The Nuance Life, we're going to be talking all about therapy. I'm super excited. We've gotten so many messages about therapy since we started The Nuance Life Wednesday. We're going to answer all of those questions. So hope you'll join us over there and come back here on Friday. Let us know your thoughts on all the things. And until we're back in touch with you, keep it nuanced, y'all. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram. <laughs>